2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 37, this evening as we come to God's word. And I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard version. It's really the New American Standard, just updated a little bit. And I've been doing that in evening service simply because I think it's a little helpful to hear uh, the covenant name of the Lord, uh, as we're, especially as we're focusing on these uh, Old Testament narratives. And just remind you, you know this, but in your English, most of your English translations in the Old Testament, you'll see Lord as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, uh, distinguished from capital L, lowercase O, lowercase R, lowercase D. And that is simply uh, most English translations a long time ago. Um, I don't mean this to be kind, unkind, but thinking of football season, they punted on the name of, of the Lord. And he revealed himself to Moses, to his people as Jehovah or Yahweh. And so that's why you'll hear me uh, reading from the Legacy Standard Version. I uh, just think it's helpful. So tonight we're in Second Kings chapter 4. Verses 8 through 37. This is God's word. Now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem, where there was a prominent woman, and she prevailed upon him to eat food. Now it happened as often as he passed by that he turned in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please, let us make a little walled upper chamber and let us set a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. And it will be when he comes comes to us that he can turn in there. Now it happened that one day he came there and turned into the upper chamber and there he lay down. Then he said to Gehazi, his young man, call this Shunammite. So he called her, and she stood before him. And he said to him, Say now to her, Behold, you have been careful for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken for to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I live among my own people. So he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Truly she has no son, and her husband is old. And he, call, and he said, call her. So he called her, and she stood in the doorway. Then he said, at this season next year you will embrace a son. And she said, no, my lord. Oh, man of God, do not lie to your servant woman. Then the woman conceived and bore a son at that season the next year, as Elisha had said to her, Then the child was grown, and the day came that he went out to his father, to the reapers. And he said to his father, My head, my head. And he said to his young man, Carry him to his mother. Then he carried him and brought him to his mother, and he sat on her knees until noon, and then died. Then she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the door behind him and went out. And she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and return. And he said, 
why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, it is well. Then she saddled a donkey and said to her young man, drive and go. Do not hold back the pace of the ride for me unless I tell you. So she went and came to the man of God to Mount Carmel. Now it happened that when the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, his young man, Behold, there is the Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. Then she came to the man of God to the hill and took hold of his feet. And Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is bitter within her, and Yahweh has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask for a son from my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, Gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not answer him. And lay my staff on the boy's face. But the mother of the boy said, As Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, I will not forsake you. And he arose and followed her. Now Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So he returned to meet him and told him, saying, The boy is not awakened. Then Elisha came into the house, and behold, the boy was dead and laid on his bed. So he entered and shut the door behind them both and prayed to Yahweh. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself on him and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned and walked in the house once back and forth and went up and stretched himself on him and the boy sneezed seven times and the boy opened his eyes. Then he called Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her. Then she came into him and he said, take up your son. Then she came in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground. And she took up her son and went out. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we understand that this event happened nearly 3,000 years ago, but you have preserved it in your inerrant, infallible word, and you have, in your providence, had it read publicly here among us this evening. And we pray that by your kind grace, that you would fulfill your holy purposes in the reading and preaching of this portion of your word this evening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in this passage, in this section generally, we are learning of several notable occasions where God used his servant, Elisha, to reveal that God is still powerful, that God is, as Elisha's name, what it means, God is salvation or God is my salvation. The days continue to be bleak in this northern part of Israel. 
It is still an area that is characterized predominantly by idolatrous worship, by a breaking of the covenant that God made with his people through his servant Moses. They worship other gods besides God. They worship, they make God engraven image. They take the name of Yahweh in vain as they worship the golden calves in not one but two different places and they worship those golden calves in the name of Yahweh. They violate the Sabbath and, and so on. It still are bleak days. They are dark days in the northern part of, of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel rather. And yet we get an instance here in chapter 4 of of light breaking in, that God has not given up on his people and that he is never intimidated by the circumstances or the darkness of the hour, but that a moment's notice and unexpectedly God is able with his power to break in marvelously. We saw this first in the beginning of the chapter with last Lord's Day with God providing for a widow, a poor widow whose husband died, whose husband was a servant of the Lord, a prophet, and her sons were going to be sold in slavery to pay for that debt. And God, in his mercy and kindness, provided for her through the filling of these empty jars, a marvelous episode. And now we come to an episode in which the wo- another woman, who in this case is not poor but very well-to-do. And before we get into the meat of the text, I do just want to note, and I don't think it's... I don't think it's uh, Incidental that here again we find God highlighting his ministry to women. Um, and, and that's not some kind of modern, you know, concern. I'm not trying to be, you know, hip and with the times. This is remarkable in light of ancient literature, of which we don't have very much, but ancient societies didn't highlight women as being necessarily uh, equal with men in terms of their value or certainly befitting of such prominence in the, in the storyline of redemptive history. Don't miss it, and uh, especially to the, to the younger ladies here, and I, I happen to have a few younger ladies, uh, uh, three daughters that I care about, and, and uh, we want our, our women and our young women, our sisters in Christ, to know that you are every bit as much as God's concern as any man, whether it be Elisha, Elijah, or otherwise. So here we have highlighting God's ministry in these dark days to two women who are on the surface of things very different, and yet they do share some things in common, and that is they are godly women. They are apparently very godly women. What they have in difference is the first woman, the woman in the beginning of the chapter, is impoverished uh, in part through the death of her husband. The second woman in the text we've read tonight apparently is well-to-do. She is a prominent woman, verse 8. She is someone who is maybe in high society. She and her husband, she has a husband, she has influence, and she apparently is a woman of means. And it also is instructive for us tonight maybe to remember that in the Gospels that Jesus does say that it is, that it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven uh, it's easier, rather, for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle, to pass through the eye of a needle, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But we must not take Jesus' words to mean that no rich people enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And we're reminded here that God uses his servants of all different kinds and different means. And it is, again, instructive here that God often, in the advance of his work, in the support of his ministry, uses both the faithful giving and support of his people, who maybe don't have as much means, and, on occasion, the especially uh, significant provisions of those he has blessed with some means. Now, here's a reminder that God's men, these men of God, are just men. They need a place to eat. They need food. Elisha, even Elisha, needs food. Even Elisha needs to sleep. And this woman knows this. She's not insensitive to his needs, and it's apparently not easy. He's, he has a circuit of ministry. You might call him itinerant preacher. He is um, a man who's used greatly of God, not only to minister to the people in Israel, but to minister to other prophets. And so he, as he travels, he often, verse 8, turned in there to eat food. And uh, she was more than happy to provide for that. And she was thinking of how could she support the ministry of the man of God. And so she says, verse 9, to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. She, she knew he was the real deal. She knew he was earnest, and, and this wasn't a sham. Um, there was no, I mean, apparent, and this is, this is instructive as well, of Elisha, your, your false prophet probably would have been especially sensitive to the means that this woman and her husband had and would maybe try to um, show deference to them because of it. Apparently, Elisha showed no preference whatsoever. He was happy for a meal, but he was not overly impressed with their wealth. Again, that's instructive. And in the household of Christ, we need to remember that in his household, he saves both those of little means and those of much. So that the Apostle Paul, when he's in Rome, and he's writing the letter, rather, not in Rome, when he's writing the letter to the Romans, he, at the close of Romans, he, he mentions some of those who are in Caesar's own household. Probably some of the more well-to-do and significantly influential people in Rome. And he writes of them just like, oh, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so. He's not overly impressed. And it's an aside, but a pet peeve I have is when we evangelicals, we hear of some sports figure or someone of some means who's saved, and within a matter of a month, we put them up in the front of the platform. We say, wow, God even saves someone like that as though it's hard for God. No, we need to remember and keep our heads that God has his people in all kinds of levels of society, and he uses them, and he shows no preference. And the same should be here. We're thankful for those that God uses to steward their funds, but in the church of Christ, we are neither rich nor poor as far as our identity. Especially in the New Testament church, you had literally slaves and slave owners. Wow, what a difference. So, this is a woman of some means, and though she is well-to-do, that doesn't mean that she can't be a godly woman. She is. She is a God-fearing woman who can recognize true holiness when she sees it. And a little later on in the text, it's, 
there's an inkling of evidence that, that she's uh, known for uh, worshiping Yahweh, the one true God, because her husband, when he asks later on, where are you going? He says it's not a new moon or a Sabbath. In other words, he's used to her uh, when the occasion arises, when there's a meeting of God's people, of going to that meeting and worshiping, even though it may be unpopular in the land of Ahab and Jezebel. She's a God-fearing woman. She knows godliness when she sees it. So I want to make this first point. I'll Maybe I'll entitle it Uncommon Stewardship. Uncommon Stewardship. Her stewardship of her means and of her resources were apparently uncommon in that day. Elisha needs to be fed. He needs, as he goes by, a place to sleep. And it may be rare, it is rather rare, that there were those who provided for these men of God. So her stewardship is an example, even if it is uncommon, an uncommon stewardship. And it is a reminder for each one of us tonight to regularly be examining what has God given to us in terms of our our resources financially, our time, our gifts, and to be considering how is it that I might be partaking in the support of the ministry of God. No one comes to her. This comes from within by the Spirit of God. No one asks her. She sees the need and she's determined to do something about it. And it may not be grand, it may not be glorious, but by making this if you will, this add-on um, apartment, in-law apartment, if you want to call it that, this some old, old, old school would be a prophet's chamber, right? A place for the preacher to come and stay when he was coming by. But by providing for that, she is providing for a very real need and in supporting the work of God. So it's notable. It's an uncommon stewardship, but it's an example to us. Well, secondly, tonight, we get to the the main heart of the story. She was a godly woman, and Elisha was blessed by her and her husband's hospitality. He was moved by it. He recognized it, and he wanted to know how he could express thanks. He wanted to recognize that their support of the ministry was particularly used of God and So she called for this woman, and he told his servant, you have been careful for us, verse 13, with all this care. Sorry, just pausing again, just look at that. You've been careful with all this care. I'm going to say it, I've said it many, many times. Do not wait around for someone to ask you to do something in the church. There's opportunities to serve all around. All you have to do is ask God and ask Christ, show me. That's it. And it's true that the church sometimes needs to think of how can we give opportunities to serve, but the vast majority of us may not be in a formal entitled ministry. We may just be like this woman that God puts on our heart 
a, a burden for an evident need, and we use what we have and the resources we have to meet it. So he recognizes the care. You've been careful, verse 13, for us with all this care. What can I do for you? And he's thinking of some of the ways that would be practical. Most people would appreciate Even though Elisha may not be a popular prophet, he still has access to the king and to the commander of the army. But her response is is very humble. I live among my own people. That's her way of saying, "I, I don't need anything. And she's speaking the truth in humility and it's another, another demonstration that she's not thinking, oh, if I build a special place for the prophet, then maybe God will give me a special blessing. That's not apparently her logic whatsoever. It's simply that she loves Yahweh, the God of Israel. She sees the need of the ministry and she uses what she has to see that it goes forth. That's it. No, no ulterior motive. It's that simple and it's that pure. It's beautiful. It really is a godly example of sincere, Christ-like, rather Christ-loving service. So what is Elisha to do? He says, verse 14, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, truly she has no son and her husband is old. Now, we don't know if Gehazi is thinking, well, maybe we could pray, you could pray Elisha and, and give her a son, but he's recognizing that she too has needs. This is, this is a need in terms of, maybe need is a strong word, or, but maybe it's better put a concern. Her husband, she has a husband, but she has no son, and her husband is old. We guys drop off earlier. It's just the way it is. You look at statistics today. It's just typically the way it is. We, we guys go first. And, uh, most of the time on all. And so, and, and in this case, he's older. So the, the chances are especially high that she is going to be a widow and she has no son to care for her. Now she may have financial needs. I mean, means, but she is nonetheless it is a concern that she has no one to care for her in her old age. So Elisha, verse 15, says, call her. Gehazi calls her, and she stood in the doorway. And Elisha said, at this season next year, you will embrace a son. Wow. Wow. Now that sounds a lot like what the angel said to Sarai the wife of Abraham, Sarah. And, you know, it was, uh, it was an amazing, uh, amazing. that, And we, we know several instances of this in the Old Testament when God promised a child, a son, to a barren woman. And out of nowhere, here we have another instance, another example of this. Only, in this case, it's not apparently tied to anything concerning the, the promised line or God of God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was necessary that there be a son. The fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through his seed and through his descendants, all the nations, 
of the earth would be blessed, all the peoples. There had to be a son. The promised plan of God was writing on it. There's nothing here that tells us that the promised plan of God is writing on this. There's, There's nothing apparently more than God cares about this woman. It's just that simple. It's, I'm going to title this second point, the typical kindness of God. If her stewardship is uncommon, especially among those who are wealthy and have means, it's an uncommon stewardship. This heart of God expressed through his servant, Elisha, is really typical of him. It's just like God to recognize, however imperfect, the thoughtful generosity of this woman in support of the worship of God and for God to acknowledge and to see her need and unasked for to give her exceedingly abundantly beyond what she could ask or imagine. It is so unimaginable, so beyond the pale of what she would think of asking, that verse 16, she says, No, my Lord, O man of God. Now, she's being reverent here. She's, she's not being contentious or uh, irreverent. No, my Lord. She, she's, she's a well-to-do, prominent woman, and yet she recognizes that Elisha, as the man of God, is, is to be honored. O man of God, do not lie to your servant woman. This is just the expression of her heart. She just, I, I, can't, I can't handle that. I, 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 you don't, don't, don't tell me that. It's a re- revealing that for many years now, in the quiet moments that she had, that with all of her wealth and all of her prominence, there was a gaping ache, gap in her heart. She wished she had a son or a daughter. That's another reminder for us, especially as those who are Christ's people, to remember that as much as we may look and see people on the outside as being very successful and put together, we often have little idea of the peculiar aches and burdens they may carry. I've learned to, I hope, I want to learn, not to covet someone else's apparent success or health or whatever it may be, because Along with all of that, there also may be some peculiar pains and hurts of the heart that I would not want to have. She has had this ache and this longing, and it's there. She has given up on having a son. She's apparently beyond uh, the hope of having a child, that everything here says that this, you know, she's just in, in shock. No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant woman. And then 
Verse 17. Not even another verse in between the two. Then the woman conceived and bore a son at that season in the next year, as Elisha had said to her. <laughs> the typical kindness of God. And how typical of God that he would overwhelm her protest. And I can say this reverently, her, her protest went one ear out of, in, in one ear of God and out the other. Because in his heart, he had determined, I'm going to bless this woman and I'm going to show my kindness to her. She can protest all she wants. <laughs> the child, verse 18, was grown up. And he's still a child, still a boy. And by this time, he is precious to his mother. He is precious to his father, but particularly his mother. God has given her joy in this point in her life. And the boy says to his father, my head, my head. It's, we all understand that our hearts are moved when a little child has pain and they don't understand it. They don't know why. They just know to say something, my head hurts. And it's shocking for he goes from being able to go out to see his father in the field, walk some distance, to saying, my head, my head to being carried by one of the servants back to his mother, and then by noon, he's dead. We don't know the, the diagnosis. We don't know the condition. But it's likely just part of living in this cursed and fallen world. It's surprising in the narrative, because God has given the woman this child, but in the context of this world under the curse of God because of its rebellion against God, we know from history and even at the present time that child mortality is not a rare thing, especially in ancient times. Even up to a few hundred years ago, it was actually pretty amazing if all your children survived to adulthood. John Owen, I I just came to mind, um, every single one of his children, and I can't remember, I'm sorry, I can't remember how many he had, but it was more than a few, every single one of them and his wife died before he did. And not uncommon in the 1600s, the 1700s, he dies. This is shocking. And we ask the question, why would God show his kindness to this woman, give her a son, and then, as a young boy, allow him to suffer and die and bring untold, unimaginable suffering to the heart of this woman? Text doesn't say. There it is. This is another reason we ought to revere and love the Bible. Because again, it doesn't cover over these things. 
Have you ever had that question with something in your life or with someone else that you've observed? Why would God allow that to happen? We're faced with this question, aren't we? There it is. The Holy Spirit isn't covering over it, not hiding it away. There it is, black and white, right in front of us, right in the middle of the story, highlighted. Wow. It's shocking. It's disturbing. But in this section, we're instructed about God, but by this woman's exemplary faith. This is our third point tonight. We've seen uncommon stewardship, the typical kindness of God, and now we witness exemplary faith in the goodness of God. It's remarkable. The boy dies on her knees. But this woman and her faith in the goodness of God is such that she won't have it. (laughs) She is not resigned to the death of this little boy. Now, this is a peculiar instance. I am not suggesting that this is a pattern, that when someone we love dies, that that we, in that instance, should just deny it and pray that somehow God will raise the person from the dead. We, we understand that this is a particular time in redemptive history. The ministry of Christ, likewise, was a particular time in that of the apostles. And yet it is instructive that her, her faith in God who gave her this son is such that she is determined to bring her case and her complaint to God by going to the man of God, Elisha. She brought the boy up on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary points out something to the effect that in essence by laying the boy on Elisha's bed, she's saying that this dead boy is Elisha and God's problem. She didn't ask for the boy, and this is God's problem, and he's going to have to remedy this. He's going to have to deal with this. It's reverent, but it is bold. And then she says to her husband, send for me, verse 22, one of the young men, one of the donkeys. It's about 15 to 18 miles or so from where she is up the valley to the coast, northwest up to Carmel. Her husband asks, and it's amazing, but she doesn't even tell him what has happened. There's a determination in her heart that she is not going to acknowledge until she has first had a hearing with God. The God who gave her this boy in the first place. And so she goes and she tells the the man in verse 24, you drive like the wind. You, you take me to Mount Carmel where Elisha is. And from where his vantage point, Elisha could see that the Shunammite woman was coming. I, I mean, it, apparently not everybody has 
um, this kind of transportation. Not everybody has horses and carts and servants. So he's able to tell who this is. He's that prominent, significant. He's able to discern who this is. And notice verse 26. Elisha tells his servant to go and ask her, is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? Is it well with you? Now, does she lie in verse 26? I suppose. If you want to get hung up on that, okay. (laughs) But what I see here is a woman that is not going to, again, let anything distract her from getting to the throne of God by laying hold of the closest thing that she can she can get to God is is the feet of the man of God that's the best she can do and she's going to have it and so she means no disrespect to Gehazi the servant of Elisha but she has no time for the servant of Elisha it's well get out of my way and she travels Verse 27, and she comes up to the hill and in bold humility and faith, she bows down prostrate and reaches out her hands and grabs his ankles. And and reverent, but Elisha is not going anywhere. Good luck getting this man of God out of the hands of this woman in her grief. It is a really moving example of what Hebrews calls us to as sinners, like she is, a sinner, not perfect men and women, but in faith, on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, to not mill around, but to boldly go before the throne of grace in the name of Jesus Christ and reverently in our praying and in our worship have a hearing in the very throne room of heaven. Not on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of the character of God, of his typical kindness. And in essence, she is saying, and we are saying in our prayers in bold humility, oh God, we didn't start this, you did. You started this, you're the one who called us. You're the one who elected us in Christ. You're the one who called us. You're the one who sent your son. You're the one who sent someone to tell us the gospel of grace. You're the one who sent your spirit to renew our hearts, gave me a hearing. You're the one who regenerated my heart. You're the one who laid hold of me and made your adopted son or daughter. You made me your servant. I didn't start this deal. You did. So I'm here to ask for your help and to complete what you've finished, to carry it on. That's the spirit of this. This is not, she's not being, um, she's not being superstitious. This isn't weird. This is a woman who is, abs- a godly woman who's absolutely broken hearted and in faith 
is laying hold of God. Elisha is not God, but he is the man of God. And she would have a hearing with God. Gehazi, verse 27, comes near to push her away. He's alarmed, <laughs> you know. Uh, and Elisha has a great stature, and, and you watch yourself around the man of God. You honor him, and she has dispensed with all niceties and just laid hold of his ankles. And Elisha responds, verse 27, let her alone. For her soul is bitter within her, and Yahweh has hidden it from me and has not told me. He sees the bitterness of her soul. And it's moving, but isn't it comforting to know that God, the God of the Bible, can see the bitterness of a woman's soul? Don't forget that. Bitterness of a man's soul. Elisha didn't understand what had happened, but Yahweh did. He presumes, Elisha does, that Yahweh already knows what's going on. He just hasn't let Elisha in on it. And she makes her case, and it's a good case. It's pretty tight. I don't see any holes in it. Verse 28, and, and hear her asking this with tears streaming down her, 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 her cheeks. Hear her asking this with reverence, not with spite. Did I ask for a son for my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? She has a good case. She didn't ask. She even protested. I I can't handle that kind of goodness, that kind of grace. So maybe just better don't even give it to me because I I can't handle the disappointment if that doesn't come past. She, She was honest about that. And yet God, in his kindness, as we saw earlier, went on ahead and in his mercy and kindness, gave her a son anyways. But the pain is such that it's hard to not wonder, again, why would God do this? It almost seems cruel. Well, Verse 29, Elisha says to Gehazi, gird up your loins, take my staff in your hand and go. And if you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him. Basically, Gehazi is to treat other people somewhat like the Shunanite woman treated him. Get out of my way. I'm on a mission. And lay my staff on the boy's face. Verse 30, the mother of the boy said, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, I will not forsake you. She appreciates the immediate response. She's not going anywhere. She's going to persist in prayer, if you will. 
She is going to pray with importunity. She will not let go until the case is settled. And it is a testimony to the woman's faith, again, this exemplary faith, that she believes God is a God who can raise the dead. That's, that's what's going on here. She, she has put the boy in the prophet's chamber. She's not told her husband what's going on because she understands that the God of Israel is the God of, of might and of power and is able to even raise the dead. It's like a Lazarus, Lazarus's sisters who believe that if only Jesus had been there, he would not have died. Her faith is exemplary. Well, we have this episode, Elisha goes, and, and we have, it's maybe a little bit strange to us, but we find actually in the interesting, similarly in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, when the boy falls out of the window in an evening service like this, when the preacher was getting a little long, it was a little warm, and, and you were starting to get a little, he was getting, starting to get a little sleepy, like some of you, maybe. And uh, he fell out of the window and died, and, and Paul went down, it's very similar. Um, it's not mumbo-jumbo, it's not magical incantations. We just must trust that these men of God were instructed and led by the Spirit of God to act in this manner as a means of God demonstrating his power even Jesus on occasions for example used mud and wiped it on the eyes of a blind man so don't be weirded out by this episode it's Elisha is very concerned very earnest and he too is calling upon God he prayed verse 33 to Yahweh The power was not in Elisha. The woman understood that. Elisha understood that. And he prayed to Yahweh. And in praying to Yahweh, doubtless, he simply reiterated the woman's case. Oh, Lord God, your name is on the line. This woman did not ask for this son, but you gave the son to her. And what will she think? And what will others think if you give such a gift? And then you rescind it. You you take it back. And here we see, fourthly and finally tonight, a preview, a preview of what is to come. A preview. Elisha prays to God, lays on the child. There's a, I suppose, a picture of of his life being imparted to this child. And the boy sneezed. Seven times. (laughs) And he opened his eyes. And then he called, had Gehazi the servant, call the Shunammite. So he called her and then she came into him and he said, take up your son. And notice where it ends. Verse 37. Then she came in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground. She worshipped. She didn't worship Elisha. She thanked Elisha, but she understood 
Elisha doesn't raise the dead. It's Yahweh, the God of this man, that raises the dead. She worshiped. And she took up her son and went out. I said this is a preview. Turn with me to Revelation. I am not teaching tonight that God will restore every thing that we have lost. This woman regained her son. But we do know from the word of God that this is a preview that not only is God kind and generous beyond telling, but that he does see the bitterness and the sorrow of our hearts and that he can and that he will address that bitterness for the praise of his glory and for his worship. Revelation chapter 7 Verse 17. Well, we see there a scene in heaven, and the Lamb at the center of the throne will shepherd these, these are the believers. And will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And then Revelation 21 verse 4. Well, begin verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things are passed away. How do you think God, I don't don't know how God will wipe away every tear, but what I mean by asking the question is, You know as well as I do is if your heart is broken in bitterness and loss and grief. That someone who doesn't really care and who just takes a Kleenex and wipes the tear from your eye, it's going to be irritating. It's going to add to the bitterness of your soul. This is not merely a physical removing of the tears here. We have a preview in God's dealing with the Shunammite woman in addressing the bitterness of her soul of what God will do in the last days in and through his son Jesus Christ with his people when we will know that our God who is with us knows the bitterness of our hearts, understands, cares beyond telling, and as only he can do, addresses the hurt of our hearts. And as only he can do, 
replaces every sorrow with joy, every loss with gain beyond telling, and who personally, personally and tenderly wipes away the tears of every one of his dear, beloved servants, his sons and his daughters. What a God this God of Elisha is, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we confess we do not understand your ways The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We know that even as your people, we can experience aches of the heart that are beyond telling. That your servants, even the ones who serve you admirably, sometimes bear a bitterness of soul that is known only to you. We take heart tonight that you sustain your people in their trials and in their sorrows. And oh, how we long and look forward to that day when you will wipe away every tear. Until then, sustain us and help us to be like this godly woman of old, using what we have to support your work here, your worship, that our faith may be more like hers in humility and boldness. And may we most of all tonight be comforted and encouraged that you, this God, that you are our God, receive our worship tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.